A man named D.L. Moody uh, served as a faithful pastor, Christian leader, and evangelist in the 19th century. Uh, He grew up in Northfield, Massachusetts, which is basically north-central Mass, close to the New Hampshire border. D.L. Moody loved Jesus, and he loved people. And he loved to share Jesus with people. He had a burden for non-Christians. The story is told that D.L. Moody made a commitment during his life to not let a day go by without sharing the good news of the gospel with somebody. One gospel conversation a day was his goal. And one evening, after a hard day's work, he laid his head down on his pillow and realized, I didn't have the opportunity for a gospel conversation today. So he rose up, took his PJs off, and went out in his street clothes. And he found a man standing under a light post. And he engaged the man in a conversation. And the man sharply, promptly dismissed D.L. Moody. Yet he was faithful in sharing the truth of Christ. Went back to bed. Three months later, that same man who sharply and promptly rejected the sharing of the gospel from D.L. Moody walked into D.L. Moody's office concerned over the condition of his soul and asked him, what must I do to be saved? And in that moment, D.L. Moody faithfully reshared the gospel with this man who responded in faith and repentance. D.L. Moody loved Jesus and he loved people and was moved to share the gospel with them. He had a burden for non-Christians. What I want to explore with you this morning is where does such a burden come from? What is a right motive for God's people to share God's word with people that don't know him? How are we rightly motivated to reach out to people with the truth of the gospel? We find the answer to that question as we continue our sermon series this morning in the book of Acts, a sermon series we've entitled Church on Mission. And we've been in a, an extended part of Paul's trials, literally his judicial trials before all kinds of people of high position. And we see Paul's burden for non-Christians, his burden for people who don't know Jesus. He's moved by love to share. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26 in the Bibles we've provided on your chairs. You can find that on page 935, page 935. If you're here today and you need a copy of the Bible, we love to give Bibles away. In the entryway, you'll see three bookcases, the furthest one from the door. Uh, There are hardback black Bibles. You can take one and give it to a friend as well. So let's read all of Acts chapter 26, page 935. Luke writes, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. 
Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hoped to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And we had all fallen to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains." Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. When they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. 
And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. If you've been following along in our sermon series for the past few weeks, you might think after I read that passage, these passages are starting to sound really similar. These sermons have overlapping content, and you would be right. Acts chapter 22 through Acts chapter 26, Paul is on trial over and over and over again, making his defense before people of high profile, Roman authorities, military commanders, governors, kings, Jewish ruling councils, defense after defense, testimony after testimony. Paul's on trial. That's the theme that runs through chapters 22 through 26. So we see three speeches, defense speeches, kind of long sections of discourse from Paul, chapter 22, before the Roman military commander, the tribune he was known as, chapter 24, before Roman governor Felix, and now here, chapter 26, before King Agrippa and the other Roman governor, Festus. Three long speeches. They have distinctives. This speech of Paul is the clearest exposition of the gospel of the others. It's a clear articulation of a gospel conversation. Paul does the bulk of the speaking, but there's also some dialogue here. It's it's a conversation of sorts. So what I want to do in this chapter is emphasize and unpack the anatomy of a gospel conversation. The anatomy of a gospel conversation. This will be instructive for us. Four features in the anatomy of a gospel conversation. The posture of having that conversation. The content delivered in the conversation. The pushback received in the conversation. And then the burden for people that you're speaking with. So the posture the content, the pushback, and the burden, the anatomy of a gospel conversation. Now, the central idea of this sermon is that a burden for non-Christians is birthed out of being captivated by Christ. Friends, we will never be motivated to share the gospel because your pastor told you to. You will never be motivated to move across your street to a neighbor and engage them over time in gospel conversation by guilt. Guilt is a terrible motivator. Oh, but you will be motivated when you become thoroughly captivated by the beauty of Jesus Christ. When you encounter him through his word and through his people, you will be moved to share his beauty and his glory, and his goodness with the people around you. So what I want to seek to do through this sermon is to rightly motivate us all to reach out to the people who need Christ. A burden for the lost is birthed out of being captivated by Christ, seeing him, seeing his beauty. 
experiencing his power. That's the central idea. A burden for non-Christians is birthed out of being captivated by Jesus Christ. The anatomy of a gospel conversation. First, the posture. The posture of a gospel conversation. In verses 2 and 3, we see Paul have the opportunity to make his defense before a king, King Agrippa, who was under the auspices of, of Rome. He was a Jewish king that had limited power, primarily over the temple when he appointed the high priest. So it was a way that Rome kind of kept peace among the people that they oversaw. They would, they, they would throw them a bone. You can have a Jewish king who would look after the temple and appoint high priests. And so King Agrippa has a measure, a limited measure of, of power, and it's before him and his colleague, Governor Festus, the Roman governor of Judea, that Paul makes his defense, his third and final speech here. Now, we see Paul speaking before this king. It's a fulfillment of what the Lord Jesus said Paul would do in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Paul, at that point, had just been converted by the grace of God. The Lord Jesus showed up, shone light on him. He's blinded. He meets a man named Ananias who attends to him in the midst of this conversion, and the Lord speaks to Ananias this word over Paul. Paul is to be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So here in chapter 26, we see the fulfillment of a certain part of that prophecy in that he will testify about me before kings. That's happening right here, right now in chapter 26. Paul testifies of Jesus before a king, King Agrippa. We mentioned this last week. The Lord is always faithful to fulfill his word. Every promise he makes will come to pass. What an encouragement. Not one promise will fail. What he says will come to pass. Oh, the encouragement. And oh, the motivation to read God's word, to know his promises and to trust it. All of these promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. He's faithful to fulfill his word. And it's happening as Paul preaches before this king. Notice the posture that Paul takes before King Agrippa. Verses 2 and 3. Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And then he says this. This is interesting. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Therefore, I beg you, King Agrippa, to listen to me patiently. Paul is respectful he honors the dignity and the authority of the person who's before him. And it doesn't matter if he's a king or a subject of the king or a peasant. Paul will honor the dignity of the person before him, which is so instructive when we share the gospel. The people that we share with are not numbers. They're not statistics. They're people. They're precious people created in the image of God with inherent dignity and value. And we do well to remember that as we share with them. They're a person, not a project. He honors the dignity of the person before him. He's also humble. He humbly asks King Agrippa to listen to him. He asks Agrippa to lend him his ears politely. Again, 
incredibly helpful for us as we seek to have gospel conversations. The power of asking permission to share the gospel. Now, it doesn't always shake out this way. There's plenty of opportunities we need to testify before people who are frustrated and angry. But we never ram the gospel down somebody's throat. It is helpful to simply ask a person, would it be okay if I shared a message with you that has been meaningful and hopeful to me in my life? Asking somebody to lend you their ears. It's disarming. It's humble. It lowers people's defenses and often serves as a gateway to deeper conversation. Our posture in having gospel conversations with non-Christians must be one of humility. Must be one of humility. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, or if you are a Christian, I want you to think back on the days of your non-Christian life. Did you ever run across a some, someone who spoke of Christ in a smug, self-righteous way? How did you feel as that person was talking about Christ? I don't want anything to do with this faith. If this is the way followers of Jesus are, I don't want any part of that. It is immediately a turnoff when you're smug and self-righteous. But on the contrary, when we're humble and thoughtful and kind, it's inviting. It's inviting. Ask people to lend you their ears. Here's how this might, might work out. Over the last two plus years, we have had multiple conversations with people in the midst of discouragement, hopelessness, despair, as they think about their own lives, families, work positions, churches, tumult has existed in all of those avenues, all of those relationships, all of those sectors, haven't they? I wonder about this segue in one of those hard and heavy conversations. Would it be okay if I, if I shared with you a message that has given me hope and perspective and peace in the midst of my own discouragement? Just a simple asking of permission. Would it be okay after listening, lean into them, listen to them, but then ask them permission? Would it be okay if I shared with you in a few minutes a message that has given me hope and peace and perspective in the midst of my own difficulty? It's disarming. And far and away, people will often listen to you. And they may not come to believe, but it's a gateway to further conversation. Humility is disarming. It brings people's defenses down and often serves as an open door for more conversation. Friends, we've got to reflect the very character of Christ who we're seeking to share with others. It's a terrible inconsistency when we come off as self-righteous or rude or smug. Carry in yourself the very character of Christ, and it enhances your sharing of Christ. The anatomy of a gospel conversation. Number one, the posture. Humility. A second feature in the anatomy of a gospel conversation. The content. The content. Here we see two realities. Now, some of this is repetition. The first thing that Paul does is share his testimony. 
he shares how his life has been changed by Christ. Now, we won't go into full details because Dylan preached this months ago in Acts chapter 9, and I did it just a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 22. If you're following Acts, Paul shares his testimony in great detail over and over again. He shares how his life was before Christ. He shares how he encountered Christ, and then he shares how his life was after that encounter. That's the, the essence of a testimony. When you share your testimony, what you want to be clear to do is share your life B.C., before Christ, how you encountered him, what were the circumstances, how did you hear it, how did you read his work, and then what has he done in your life since that encounter? That's just the basic outline of a testimony. Your life before Christ, how you encountered him, and how your life has changed. Paul does this over and over again. Your salvation story is powerful. It is a weapon in your arsenal in reaching out to people. There is no such thing as an unremarkable salvation story. Every single one is miraculous because only God can take somebody who's spiritually dead and make them spiritually alive. I don't care if your story is, you know, Dane, there never was a time that I didn't know I was a Christian or didn't think I was a Christian. I just grew up, my mom and dad taught me about Christ. That is a beautiful and miraculous reality that God would raise you up in a Christian home. And from a young age, sow the seeds of the gospel through your parents or your grandparents or somebody, a teacher. That is remarkable. It's miraculous. And at some point, God regenerated your heart because we're all born into sin. At some point, God regenerates our hearts. He makes us born again. It doesn't have to be dramatic, but they're all miraculous. Some of us have been delivered from a wayward destitute lifestyle. Praise God, it's equally miraculous. Every single story is a miracle. Never be ashamed. Never be ashamed to tell your story. God uses it. But it can't just end at your story. Your story needs to segue to the gospel. That's what Paul does. He often begins with his story in these defense speeches and then he segues to the gospel. So what we see in the content portion here in this anatomy of a gospel conversation is a testimony that leads to proclamation, a testimony of how Paul's been transformed and then a proclamation of the transforming power that is the gospel. We see this bridge from testimony to proclamation in verses 12 through 23. Let's revisit those verses. Verses 12 through 23, Paul says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Let's just pause there. Notice how intimately associated Jesus is with his people. To persecute his people is to persecute him. He so intimately is united with his people that to hurt them is to hurt him. That's what Jesus says. Jesus goes on in verse 16, But rise and stand to your feet, Paul, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, 
from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is Paul's testimony on the road to Damascus where he's going to persecute and in fact imprison and kill Christians. He's met by the Lord. The Lord transforms his life and gives him a commission and a calling. And in that calling, you see embedded the unpacking of the gospel that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, that they may be delivered from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Notice, wrapped up in Paul's testimony is the very proclamation of the gospel. Make sure as you share your testimony, you segue to the gospel, you proclaim how a person can be forgiven and transitioned from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. He continues to weave in the gospel. Verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim both light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. You see the transition that happens? He shares his story, and then he is drilling down on the gospel here in these latter verses, 22 and 23, I'm just proclaiming what Moses and the prophets said would happen, that Christ would suffer and that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light and life to Jews and Gentiles alike. Clear proclamation of the gospel. Christ must suffer in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures, that he would rise from the dead as a first fruits meaning the first of an abundant harvest. So Jesus Christ, as the resurrected Lord, is a foretaste, a first fruits of what is to come. Every one of his servants who trust in him will too be resurrected to a body that is incorruptible, imperishable, not susceptible to sin. That is the hope of the resurrection. This is what we proclaim. And Paul's clear about the response. What's the response? Over and over again, repent, Repent, turn to him, do a 180 from your sin, and turn in faith to Christ. He's unpacking the gospel. That's the content of our gospel conversations. We can share our testimonies, but let us be sure that that testimony segues to the clarity of the gospel. Christ came, Christ suffered and died, and Christ rose again, conquering sin and death. And anybody who trusts in him and turns from their sin is forgiven, is ushered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The bonds of Satan are broken. And you're welcomed into the arms of Christ. That's the power of the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? If you're here today, where do you stand with this message? What do you do with this message? Will you trust in Christ and turn from your sin, be forgiven and restored in right relationship? with God. It's the most gracious gift that you could ever receive. This is the gospel, and it is powerful and effective.
and has power to open people's eyes. Verse 18. You will proclaim this message, Paul, that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Do you believe that Jesus has power this morning to deliver you from darkness into light? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has power to forgive you of your every sin? No matter what you've done in the past, no matter what you're currently caught in right, right now, Jesus forgives you a sinner when you trust in him. The posture of a gospel conversation, the content of a gospel conversation. Thirdly, the pushback in a gospel conversation. Notice Governor Festus' response to Paul's speech in verse 24. As Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Festus is saying, Paul, you're off your rocker. All your study, all these scriptures are driving you batty. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when people look at you like you're crazy when you share the gospel. You ought not to be surprised. Because from a human point of view, it does seem far out that God would become a man, a man that you would overlook if you were in first century Palestine, unremarkable in many ways, a carpenter. And then suddenly when he turned 29, 30 years old, he began to preach and heal and deliver. And people were like, who is this? This was a common guy, the, the son of Joseph. I know the shop that he worked in. People were, what is, what is happening here? And at the end of those three years of proclamation of ministry, he laid his life down, was buried in a tomb, and rose up again. Anybody who trusts in him is forgiven and has eternal life. That is a, just think about that. If you've never heard that before, that's going to take some time probably to process. It's far out. Don't be surprised when people look at you like you're crazy when you share the gospel. Be not ashamed. Just stay the course. Love them. Acknowledge some of the challenges. And just keep sharing. Keep sharing. Festus pushes back against Paul. King Agrippa has a milder form of pushback, doesn't he? Let's look at how King Agrippa responds to Paul, verses 25 and following. Paul said to Festus, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his attention, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He's making an appeal to Agrippa. I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa holds Paul at arm's length here, saying, in such a short time, Paul, would you persuade me to turn to Christ? Agrippa was a Jew. He was not a Christian. But Paul works with the foundation of his Judaism and seeks to urge him to trust in Christ. He says, Agrippa, I know you believe the prophets. That's a key step. That's a key foundation. You believe the prophets, you can believe in Christ because the prophets spoke of Christ. That's his line of argumentation. I know you believe in those prophets. I know you believe in Moses. 
And Festus holds him, Agrippa holds him at arm's length. In such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? The truth is, Paul has provided Agrippa with sufficient detail for him to trust in Christ. Yes, we need time to process. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to explore the claims of Christianity. But there comes a point, friend, that you have to come to terms with those truths. What will you do with what you know about Christ, what you've heard about his sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection, and his promise to return, his offer of forgiveness? What will we do with the news, the good news of Christ? There comes a point where we have to do business with it. And in the end, there's only two responses, to accept or reject. What will we do with the news, the good news of Christ? Pushback will come in various forms and to various degrees, but stay the course. It is our burden for people that empowers us to keep sharing. And that's our fourth and final feature. So we see the posture, the content, the pushback. Fourthly and finally, the burden in gospel conversations. We see Paul's burden for non-Christians, for Agrippa and others in verse 29. Paul says to Agrippa, who said, in such a short time, Paul, would you convince me to be a Christian? Here's what he says. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. In other words, might become a Christian, except for these chains. Notice how gracious he is. I wish you could be just as I am, except being locked up right now. This is kindness. It's compassion. Never underestimate. It goes back to the posture. Never underestimate the tool of compassion and kindness as you share the gospel with people, even if they're angry with you. Kindness. Kindness. He has a deep longing for people to become Christians. Would to God. That's, an that's a prayer expression. Oh, that God might do that in your life. It's a plea. It's a prayer. You see his heart just bursting forth with love for people, a burden for people to become Christians. Do you long for people in your life to become Christians? It's a great question. Write it down and revisit it this week. What do you long for? What burdens your heart in this life? There's many things that we can be burdened by. But one of the most important things we can be burdened by is the people's need of Christ all around us. Where does the right motivation come from? Not guilt. If you hear me guilting you into sharing the gospel, I've not done my job. That is not the motivation. A burden to share Christ with people is birthed out of being captivated by Christ, being so caught up in who he is, in his beauty, everything else pales in comparison. Everything else is second rate. Paul encountered Christ on the Damascus Road. Paul encountered the most beautiful, powerful, and glorious reality in the universe. That is the risen Jesus. And so have we if we are Christians. That encounter and his continual work in our lives through his word and through his church 
is what motivates us and encourages us onward to share Christ. May we behold Christ, be captivated by him through his word and through his church. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. We all, with unveiled faces, are beholding the glory of the Lord and in so doing are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord. How is it that we are transformed in this life? How is it that we mature and grow in this life, which includes being moved to share the gospel and being obedient to that calling? How is it? It's from encountering the glory of Christ and taking one step, one degree of growth after another. It comes by beholding Jesus. And how do we do that? We read his word and we spend time with his people. We encounter Christ through his word and through his church. And as we do that, we're captivated by him. We're moved, we're burdened by him to invite others into that community, to encounter that Christ. A pastor friend of mine once shared this advice with me. He said, Dane, your goal in preaching the gospel is not to hear, wow, pastor, that was a great sermon at the end. In my flesh, I like to hear that sometimes. But what's even better to hear is that, oh, pastor, what a great Savior. What a great Savior we have. And so it is, not just in our sermons, but in our sharing of the gospel, our goal is not to say, wow, what wit, what winsomeness, though we need to be winsome and kind and humble. But the focus is not on ourselves. The fo focus must be on Christ. So our goal in sharing the gospel and preaching the gospel and teaching the gospel is to hear when we're done, what a great Savior. There's none like him. Who is like you, O Lord? Delivering from sin and death. There's none like him. That is our goal. That is our motive. We will share the gospel imperfectly. We will make mistakes. We will stumble over our words. We will not know how to reply at times. But stay the course. Share and keep sharing. Love and keep loving. And over time, people will encounter the risen Christ because he said he promised that they would through our faithfulness. He delights to use imperfect people like you and like me. Why? Because it shines forth his glory and his power all the more. Who else could use such broken vessels to hold out the gospel? So just keep doing it. Motivated, motivated by genuine love for Christ and for people. To that end, we pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word that we can encounter you through your word, your power, your beauty, your grace. Lord, you've positioned each one of us in settings where we interface with people who need you. There are people here in this room who need you. And God, I pray that you would captivate their hearts through your word, through your truth and your grace. Move us, Lord, not out of guilt and drudgery, but out of a genuine love and passion and captivation for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.